Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I have a very, very special treat. It is an honor uh, for me to be doing this interview, and I, I'm just really excited. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. Uh, I'm with Mr. Derek Gilbert of Skywatch TV and uh, many other uh, things. Like, you know, he does a Bible study on Sunday morning called the Gilbert House Fellowship. And he's an author to boot. Like, he doesn't have anything else to do. <laughs> So, in fact, uh, his his uh, his being an author is why we're here. So we'll get to that. But I want to touch on today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is um, Kadosh Media. Now, I haven't really talked about this on this show, but if you guys are ever looking to do a podcast, we can help with that. Kadosh Media is a Christ-centered podcast production company that helps to give the remnant a voice. If you want to learn more, go to www.kadoshmedia, K-A-D-O-S-H, media.com. Fill out that form. We'll be glad to meet with you. All right. So let's get on with the show, shall we? Derek, welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. Teresa, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on today. Can you kind of give my audience a brief overview of like how you got into doing what you do now? By accident. That's In, in a nutshell, that's, that's it. I um, w- was kind of an unusual kid, which I guess fits because I'm kind of an unusual man. Um, when my normal friends, as we were growing up, would you know, listen to the top 40 radio stations out of Chicago, which is where I grew up uh, at night, I'd be listening to late night talk show hosts. Coast to coast AM. <laughs> well, that was, that was before Art Bell. I mean, you know, I'm 60 years old, so I'm talking, you know, local talk radio. This is really before syndicated. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're talking, uh, you know, Larry King overnight was, was uh, the big overnight talk show host at that point in in time. But I was listening to local guys in Chicago, like Dave Baum and Chicago, Eddie Schwartz and Dr. Milton Rosenberg. And, you know, the guys that they brought on and thought, wow, just, I'm, I just all this stuff that I can learn. And, and I guess I come by that. Honestly, my mother was a, a teacher for a short while as she was uh, uh, coming of age in North Dakota and then decided she didn't want to live the life of a farmer's wife because uh, she's seen how hard women have to work on the farm. So she wound up moving to Chicago, which is why I'm from Chicago. But um, that that was in, instilled in me early on, a love of reading, a love of learning. And um, that that stayed with me my whole life. Uh, I got distracted in college, wound up going into radio as a broadcaster for a while. I, I, I guess I've always loved telling other people what I know, which, you know, maybe psychologically is... Uh, <laughs> Not necessarily a healthy thing, but the, you know, the Lord has found a way to use that and, and the other odd personality quirks that I have. Uh, I was into broadcasting from the time I was in college, really worked my way through college as a broadcaster and uh, continued on in broadcasting until the early 90s. So I graduated from college in 84, uh, spent about, you know, about almost 10 years after college in broadcasting. But uh, not as a talk show host, because when you come out of college age 22, nobody needs a 22-year-old talk show host because you don't know anything. So right. uh, I wound up in top 40 radio. and Which is uh, the thing you wanted to avoid when, when you were a kid. So that's kind of funny. Yeah, it was, it was ironic. I had to go back and catch up on all the music that I had missed when I was younger. But I found as I achieved some success in that industry that I was promoting a lifestyle that later when our daughter was born, uh, I didn't want her listening to. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and it finally dawned on me after a while, I, I worked my way up from uh, Galesburg, Illinois to Peoria to Philadelphia, which was quite a jump. And then Little Rock, St. Louis, uh, never really happy. And it finally dawned on me as I got into my early thirties, that's because I was putting on a mask. I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. And, um, but you know, all of that experience apparently was uh, training for what we're doing now. So, you know, long story short, Sharon and I met after my first marriage broke up. And uh, we, we met by uh, long, well, it, it was really a long distance relationship. We were early adopters of uh, uh, these uh, online dating sites. It was not a Christian dating site. It was a secular dating site, but it was 1997 and only 20% of America was even online at the time. So uh, right. we were connected, even though she was going to school, or, well, had graduated, was working at Indiana University and I was living in St. Louis. So um, 
Good thing I checked the box on the uh, questionnaire that said I'd be willing to drive 200 miles to meet somebody because we found out later she lived about 195 miles away from where I was. So, oh, that's funny. Yeah, if I'd picked you know 50 or 100, we we might never have met. But again, you know, God had all of this in mind from the beginning. I'm convinced of that. So we've been married 24 years now. Uh, happier now than we were the day we married. But it's been a journey for me because, as Sharon will tell you, when we first met, I was. Um, really kind of a, a universalist, I guess. You know, we're all on this path, you know, Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. And, you know, no one, we don't, no one really has the truth. I'm sure there's a God out there, but uh, we're all finding our own way to him, which of course is not consistent with uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he also is very clear in saying there's only one way to the father and that's through him. But uh, I had already started down that journey by beginning to investigate apologetics, mm-hmm. which I turned to uh, after my first marriage broke up. Um, and you know, I'm not proud to say that it was because I was trying to proof text the Bible to find out why I was right and my ex-wife was wrong. Um, that's not the way you read the Bible. But again, the Lord used it for his purposes because as I began to study, I was like, oh, okay, there are really good reasons to believe that the Bible is true. And that means I've got to rearrange the way I've been thinking about some things, including... Mm including my ex-wife, you know? So anyway, um, that has, again, been quite a journey. Sharon will tell you that uh, she knew from a very, very early age, she knew that she knew that she knew that God was real, that he loved her, had a plan for her life. Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again on the third day. I had to see the evidence. God bless men like uh, Lee Strobel and Josh I was McDowell. just thinking of him, yeah. Yes, who wrote that, because Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, Yep. And the case for you know, and at least Strobel's evidence that demands a verdict. Um, that that was really influential on me. That's what it took for me. Sharon didn't mm. need it. So we, we kind of approached things from a different direction. But and from there it uh, was just okay, how do how do we live this out? How do I apply these things that uh, have these desires that have instilled in me to read, to learn, to study, and then to talk a lot, which as my mother will tell anyone, uh, he started at 18 months and hasn't stopped. So uh, <laughs> And and here we are. It just uh, one thing led to another, and it was not a plan. Had we tried to plan this course of action, um, I, I'm sure we would have missed the mark. But uh, God just opened doors as uh, uh, you know. Sharon began writing and attracted a publisher, and that uh, led to us starting our podcast in 2005, PID Radio, because we were trying to market away mar- market our books without having to spend any money, and. Um, that led to interviews with people like Dr. Michael Heiser, L.A. Marzulli, Tom Horn. And so here we are, part of that part of that group now. My past, I have a, very, I have a similar experience. I, I was kind of the kid. I would listen to music, but at night, I like to listen to late night radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I would listen to the stuff that talked about all the weird stuff. Uh, because as a kid, I had questions, you know, and I wasn't, you know, but uh I just never knew that I would end up doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you just, you know, you just never know. And then God goes, surprise, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you've written a new book called the second coming of Saturn. Yes. Is this a book that someone could pick up having never read any of your other works or does it build on some of your other material? It, uh, it definitely builds on some of the earlier material, but it, it does stand on its own. I, I would say that the foundation for this, and I, I like to give him credit every time we uh, talk about what we do, and it's Dr. Michael Heiser. His uh, book, The Unseen Realm, was really is, is foundational. The, the idea that there is a divine counsel created by God that serves at his pleasure, uh, and then some of whom have decided to reject his authority and go freelance. Uh, rebellious fallen angels, if you want to think of them that way, makes the Bible come alive. Suddenly, there are a lot of things in Scripture that uh, make sense that didn't make sense before. Most of us in church, if we even attend a church where uh, the existence of Satan is acknowledged, um, it's usually just Satan and maybe a few demonic minions. That's a big if. And that's a big if, because most Christians, according to uh, Barna Group surveys, don't even believe that Satan is a literal entity. 60% of Christians are, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a concept or a force or a symbol that represents the evil in our own hearts. Well, that's not how he's described in the Bible. And so the Bible is the word of God. How do you get to that conclusion by you know, allegorizing what the Bible clearly depicts as a literal entity? Um, 
And then forget about these other gods, small g gods who are mentioned in the Old Testament and some of the other weird things like dragons and giants and stuff. Well, when you understand that uh, that was the worldview of the apostles and the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, they knew that the gods of their pagan neighbors were real, but uh, fallen angels, again, if that's a more comfortable term, um, suddenly the existence of, of evil in the world begins to make more sense. The, 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 the spirit realm, the unseen realm, again, the title of Mike Heiser's book, is a lot more crowded than we've been taught. And the entities that populate it were created with free will, just like you and me and everyone on earth. And not all of them are, they're not little automatons that are programmed to only do good. They can choose just as we do. And so you've got multiple evil intelligences, many, many of them who want to destroy what God created and called good. And uh, this book just focuses, the second coming of Saturn focuses on one entity who led a rebellion thousands and thousands of years ago and who still has a role to play in the end times. And even today, as uh, uh, he is chained up in the bottomless pit, uh, as the Bible, I think, uh the evidence in the Bible suggests he still influences things on the earth today. So this is just trying to unmask this entity and uh, hopefully give people a sense that uh, God uh, saw all of this coming from the beginning and he's got a plan for how to uh, get us out of it. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, And if someone listens to that, does this divine council also tie into Genesis uh, chapter six? Well, they would be members who were, probably formerly part of the divine council. Divine council is a term that we see in uh, Psalm 82. At least that's how it's translated into English. But we see it in action in a number of places. For example, 1 Kings 22, where God is um, asks other spirit beings, uh, angels, if you will, that English term is really imprecise. Uh, angel is not as specific as it should be, but I'll use it because that's the term we're familiar with. So these angelic beings that are around the throne of God. And God asks them, how are we going to deceive Ahab to lure him into going to battle against the Syrians where he will be killed? And one says one thing, another says another. And finally, a spirit says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets and I'll deceive him. And God says, ah, you will succeed. Go and do so. Now, God knows the end from the beginning. Okay. He knows what's going to happen. He didn't need to ask the opinion of these other entities created beings that he spoke into existence, but he did for his own pleasure, just as he didn't need to create you and me, Teresa. And here we are having this conversation. Right. His own pleasure. He has created us all just as parents who know when they get married that, uh, you know, if we have child someday, that child is going to rebel against me and lie to me and try to get away with stuff, just like I did to my mom and dad. But we're going to have these children anyway, and we are going to love them with all of our hearts and protect them from the bad that's in the you know, just imagine God doing that, but times seven and a half billion <laughs> at any given wow. moment. That's that's kind of where we are. And these these fallen angels who decided to rebel, you know, saw that God had created this earth and he populated with these these biological entities that have to procreate in order to continue to live. Like Jesus said, you know, the angels in heaven neither marry nor give in marriage because they're eternal. They don't die. But we do. God, we're, we're a different kind of creature. God created us to inhabit this domain and to have dominion over the earth. And these angels apparently were jealous. I don't know. And uh, came down and, and tried to um, mess up what God had created by uh, both according to the book of Enoch, which is not in the Bible, but it helps explain that little passage in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 and the reason for Noah's flood which follows immediately after the story of the, uh, the creation of the giants in Genesis 6, they, they taught us things we weren't supposed to know, and they corrupted the human bloodline by uh, commingling it with, uh, with their own bloodline, crossing the species barrier, if you will, which was forbidden. So, uh, yeah, they would have been part of God's counsel. And there are other examples of the divine counsel in the Bible, by the way. We just did an interview with Dr. Mike Heiser for uh, our weekly video program, The Bible's Greatest Mysteries. And he talked about that, where 1 Kings 22, you've also seen it in Psalm 82, of course, but in Daniel, it appears in Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 7, where these angelic beings are given some authority, some responsibility. When Nebuchadnezzar has his dream that he's going to go mad, that uh, decree of the punishment is brought to him by a watcher which is a type of angelic being, 
And he's told that by this, this entity that this, this is by the decree of the watchers. And then in Psalm 7, where the rebellion of the, you know, Daniel has that terrifying dream of the four beasts, and then you got the 10 horns and the little horn comes up among them and, uh, you know, uproots three of the horns and it speaks blasphemous things. And then a court will sit in judgment, a heavenly court. Well, who's on the court? It's not just God, but the court is members of this divine council. It's like, it's like a, a royal, it's, it's like a king with his court. Again, the king makes a decision, but the court carries out his will. And that's kind of what we see in the divine realm. I never would have picked up on that. Wow. Okay. So carrying this um, divine council idea forward, knowing that you've got this this divine court and you've got some of these uh, entities that have decided to kind of do their own thing. You said that the um, the second coming is in the second coming of Saturn, one, that the entity is still in the abyss. And two, he's still influencing things on the earth. My question is, who is this entity? Well, I believe he's the entity that uh, is named in the book of e- book of First Enoch, more precisely, the book of First Enoch, which describes this uh, early rebellion where these uh, watchers or watcher class entities descended to Mount Hermon and decided to corrupt humanity. He would be the chief of the watchers, Shemiyaza. And I reached that conclusion by looking at... Uh, Again, the, the few clues that we have about him in the Bible, in Second Peter chapter 2, we're told that uh, there are angels who sinned that God thrust down to hell, except that the word in Greek behind the English word hell is Tartarosis, which means that he didn't thrust them to Hades, he's thrust them down to Tartarus, which is the bottomless pit, the abyss. And there's a difference between Hades, where the run-of-the-mill human dead go, and Tartarus, which was where the... Uh, supernatural rebels who were too powerful to allow them to roam free, like the Titans of the Greeks, the old gods who were uh, overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians, or uh, Jupiter and the Olympians in the Roman pantheon, uh, they were confined in this bottomless pit, along with certain other monsters like the chaos monster Typhon and uh, some others. So Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, places these rebellious angels in Tartarus, and when you start looking at the, the, the religions of the ancient Near East, you see that in other cultures like the, the Hittites and the Hurrians and the Akkadians and the Sumerians and the Canaanites, the Amorites, they've got a similar story where the old gods who used to be headed up by an entity named uh, Kumarbi to the Hurrians and Hittites, uh, El to the Canaanites, Dagon to the Amorites and the Philistines, Enlil to the Akkadians and Mamelonians and Sumerians, he was replaced, and he and his pantheon are now in the netherworld. Like, oh, well, isn't that interesting that this same pattern repeats over and over going back 5,000 years? That is interesting. Carry, carries over into the modern era. So it's. And, and we see that also with the biblical flood. Uh, we see similar stories in other um, religious yes. texts around that time. Exactly. There, uh, much of what we call myth. And Greece, Rome, Egypt, the Norse, et cetera, et cetera, are, are really echoes and twisted echoes of the real history that is recorded in the Bible. And so my, my thesis then was that the titans of the Greeks were these watchers that uh, the book of First Enoch says are now confined in the netherworld, the angels who sinned. Jude also references them in, in verses six and seven of the epistle of Jude, angels that are chained in gloomy darkness until the judgment. And um, it's, it's clear from Peter and Jude, by the way, when you read 2 Peter 2 and Jude in context, you see that the sin of these rebellious angels was a sexual sin, just as what's described in Genesis 6. So the chief of the, that group, Shemiyaza in the book of Enoch, would, in my view, be the king of the Titans called Kronos by the Greeks, Saturn by the Romans. What's even more interesting is that back in 1999, a scholar by the name of Amar Anus, he's an Estonian wrote a paper called, Were There Greek Rephaim? A Rephaim are mentioned in the Bible, um, mainly in uh, Deuteronomy, where uh, they occupy the end in Genesis as well. They occupy the Transjordan, the land east of the Jordan River, later occupied by the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. They um, are mentioned far more frequently in the Old Testament than we realize because other than those references as living tribes, most of them wiped out in the days of Abraham, 
Uh, Og, the remnant of, who was the king of Bashan, was the last of the remnant of the Rephaim, and he's destroyed in the book of Deuteronomy, or Exodus, actually. Um, but there are other references to the Rephaim in, uh, throughout the Bible. It's just that the word is usually translated as the dead or the departed or shades. Huh. Until the, within the last 40 years or so, scholars have only just begun to acknowledge, yeah, there was a cult of the dead, uh, a pagan cult of the dead around ancient Israel, where they venerated the Rephaim. Uh, the Rephaim are mentioned by name in Amorite texts from the ancient kingdom of Ugarit which was destroyed in the middle of the period of the judges around 1200 BC. But there are uh, three texts called the Rephaim texts from this kingdom where they are clearly believed to be uh, mighty warriors of old, believed to be the ancestral kings of the Amorites. And they are summoned in a necromancy ritual to the threshing floor or the tabernacle or the sanctuary of El, their creator God, equivalent to Kronos, Saturn, Enlil, Dagon, etc., and uh, that would be the summit of Mount Hermon, which is where the Watchers' Rebellion in Genesis 6 took place, as reported in the book of First Enoch. It's like, okay, so we're putting these pieces together. So we've got the Titans of the Greeks, the Watchers of the Hebrews, and the Rephaim connected to this now. As uh, Amar Anus wrote, the, uh, the Greek term used by the poet Hesiod, and also by Homer, uh, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, for the men the demigods who lived during the golden age when Kronos ruled in heaven before he was overthrown and cast down to Tartarus. The Greek phrase is Merapes anthropoi, where we get the word anthropology and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, Merapes is based on the same Semitic root behind Rephaim. So huh. the heroes, the demigods of the Greeks, like Heracles and Perseus, mm -hmm. they were Rephaim. They were by definition Nephilim because they were the hybrid children of gods and men. So you're saying basically that like all these gods from the Roman times and the Greeks and uh, even some of these like way back, like the uh, like a lot of the tribes that Israel, ancient Israel had to contend with. Mm -hmm. All of these gods were basically the same God wrapped in different packaging. Yeah. Yeah. The one who led this rebellion, uh, Shemiyaza to the ancient Hebrews would be the entity that the Romans called Saturn, that the Greeks called Kronos. The Phoenicians knew him as Baal, Haman. Uh, the Ammonites called him Milcom. The, Greek, the Hebrews called him Molech. And uh, there's oh. a consistent pattern to all of these where um, in uh, the Greek and the Roman stories, he was uh, the one who overthrew the sky god. And then it was prophesied that his children would overthrow him. And so he would eat the children as they were born. His children, uh, Zeus was saved he was Zeus was the seventh of the children born to Kronos and his wife Rhea. Uh, I guess it took Rhea a little while to recognize a pattern here after Kronos had swallowed six of her children. Um, and he was given a stone instead. And Zeus was raised in secret, grew up, led the rebellion, freed his siblings, and then banished Kronos and the Titans to the, uh, to the netherworld, to uh, Tartarus. But the story repeats with just different, different, uh, uh, details here and there. But when you step back and look at the broad strokes of the story, there's an old sky god who was driven off by the grain god, Saturn, Kronos, Baal, Haman, El, Dagon, Enlil, etc. And uh, then in turn, he's overthrown by a son who was the storm god, Zeus, Jupiter, Baal, Marduk. Um, it's the same pattern over and over. You get even a similar story with the Odin and Thor. And it's not a coincidence. It's the same story just been twisted and sold to the pagans. Oh, this is why the old god Kronos isn't around anymore because Zeus threw, overthrew him. No, the true story is that the sky god, Yahweh of the Bible, the god of the Bible, is not driven off. He's not powerless. He's actually the one who thrust these old gods down into Tartarus. But because he didn't create humanity with, you know, as little automatons, little robots who can only do good, we can exercise free will. We keep falling back into the worship of these fallen angels and their demonic minions. And we see that uh, even today. Um, I'm a huge audio, audio book reader. Um, and I started seeing, I was kind of skimming through, you know, what to read next. And uh, I was looking at, there's like this Percy and the Olympians book series. Yes, yes. And, and then there's like, if you look at like a lot of the, the, um, what do you call it? The, 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 
stuff that Disney puts out, mm -hmm. they have a major fascination with the occult and with and with uh, you see Thor depicted. You see um, uh, what uh, his dad depicted. Um, and, and it's just really interesting that like Hollywood has really taken up the cause of these old gods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in fact, Disney is uh, publishing the Percy Jackson stories now, and they've brought in new authors so that they can expand beyond the Greek or the Greco-Roman pantheon and bring in the Egyptian pantheon, the, the Indian or Hindu pantheon, the, uh, uh, the Korean pantheon, the Mayan pantheon, the Norse pantheon. Huh. And it's all aimed at young teens, you know, middle school and early high school readers to sell them on the idea that it would be really, really cool to be the child of a deity. Um, in our previous books, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, and Veneration, Sharon and I wrote about this, Veneration focusing on this, ven well, Veneration, the, the worship of these spirits, the Rephaim, and the, uh, the, the occult practices that they encouraged. Uh, Giants, Gods, and Dragons is really just about uh, the reality of these entities that are mentioned in the Bible that most of us have been taught are just, you know, made up. Okay, this part of the Bible is weird. We'll just skip right over it. Giants, they're just, you know, stories that the Israelites told when they got into the into the Holy Land and found these megalithic structures. They figured, okay, must be giants built those. Well, yeah, they, but they really, really did exist. And their spirits continued on after the flood. Um, the early church, Jews of the Second Temple period, which is the period between the return from Babylon and the destruction of the temple by the Romans in uh, uh, around 70 AD, they understood that demons were the spirits of the Nephilim, the giants who died in the flood of Noah. And that was the belief of the early church. When the early church fathers, when you read the early church theologians, it was unanimous. They all understood. And they understood the connection to the Greek myths as well. In fact, you see this in the Septuagint translation of the Bible, which Jewish scholars translated about 200 years before the birth of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You see uh, connections made over and over again in the Old Testament between the Rephaim and the Titans, or Rephaim and giants. They understood the connection. What the Greeks and Romans believed was not separate, distinct, and you know, from, from the stuff in the Bible. It's all mixed together. And, and again, the, the pagan version the, the myths or what we call myths of the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians. That's just the fake news version of actual world history. I'm hearing this and, you know, one, I'm a history buff. I, I kind of love to read about, you know, cool things like that. Um, but for the average listener who might be hearing this, they're going, okay, but you said that this thing is in the bottomless pit. Uh, how is it supposed to have any any impact in, in my life i mean it's not like mm -hmm. i'm it's not like i'm going around trying to like deal with these things i mean that happened thousands of years ago so what what does that have to do with today well i think we could ask the same question about how a uh, a mafia boss can still influence things that are happening on the streets while he's locked up in prison or a gang leader you know still influencing what happens out on the streets when he's in jail uh, there are demons, demonic minions who are operating in dimensions that we can't perceive with our natural senses. Now, this is speculation, I admit, because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but my guess is that uh, he is able to influence what happens here in the natural realm through communication with demons. And again, if the demons are the spirits of these hybrid children created by these entities that are in the abyss, it's like, yeah, okay, dad said to come meet him for you know some instructions, and then we'll go back to the world and we'll try to influence humanity to do these things that we want dad to do because he's getting out someday. And when he does, boy, we're, we're getting human bodies back and we're going to be, I, I'm, again, I'm speculating, but we do know that the Bible says that these entities get out of the bottomless pit for a period of time, right at the end before uh, God puts a stop to it all. Right. Are these, so, because uh, the book of Revelation describes when, when you open up a bottomless pit, describes a bunch of locusts, which by the way, uh, assuming these things are real, I have no desire to meet them. They, <laughs> they look ugly as crud. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not a fan of things that fly and sting. <laughs> well, the good news is that, uh, I, first of all, I don't think we'll be here then. I think the church will be uh, raptured out of here before things get to that point. But even if we are here, Revelation 9 says that when these things fly out of the bottomless pit, they can only harm those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Right. And and by the way, this is another bit of evidence that uh, we overlooked. We just stumbled onto this about a year ago, Sharon and I, with our weekly Bible study, as we were going through 
revelation. I, and actually, I think now that I think about it, I think we stumbled onto this as we were uh, doing our, our weekly program called Unraveling Revelation as we got to Revelation. Which is a, which guys, if you aren't listening to Skywatch in all of their program, especially Unraveling and uh, the latest uh, one that they're doing, Mysteries of the Bible, you really, really ought to go. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mind bender. I mean, they really do a good, good work there. Um, and so, yeah, you know, when you're not listening to Unresolve, you might want to go add that one to your collection. <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the period of time that these entities have, that they're allowed to harm those without the seal of God is five months. And we know that in the Bible, a lot of symbolic numbers are used. The numbers uh, seven, you know, three and seven and 10 and 40 and 100 show up a lot. 70 is a big one. 70, which is a symbolic representation of the complete set, all of them, not one left out, uh, which is why we see things like, you know, Ahab had 70 sons and Gideon had 70 sons. And well, did they really have 70 kids or does it just mean that all of them were killed? That's what it means in the ancient Near East, not just with the Hebrews, but all of their neighbors too. Everywhere in ancient Mesopotamia, when you said 70, it didn't literally mean seven times 10. It meant all of them, everything, every one of these, you know, not one left out. But five months is kind of an odd period of time. So why did they get five months? Well, you go back to Genesis 7 and 8, and you look at the, um, the length of time that Noah's ark was on the water before it came to rest. And we're told twice in Genesis 7 and 8 that it's 150 days, which in a 30-day lunar calendar is exactly five months. Huh. So it's these entities who were thrust down to Tartarus, according to Peter, and forced to watch while their children, these hybrid monstrous giants, were destroyed in the flood, that's exactly the same amount of time that they get at the end to torment those who have not been sealed by God. Now, whether that's us and we're looking at a post-tribulation rapture, which I don't think, or if it's those, who, those who've been sealed because they've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior during the Great Tribulation, which will be exceedingly difficult to do, uh, either way, Placing your trust in Jesus Christ protects you from these these things. But yeah, it looks it looks yeah. They, you know, they, it almost sounds like to me yeah, it almost sounds to me like they get a little bit of revenge. They kind of do, and it book I mean, the book of Genesis. So I, I, again, it's not coincidental. You know, and in and in Hebraic thought, uh, what happened before will happen again. So you know, and a lot of people they want to dismiss the book of Revelation. Well, you can't really do that because the book of Revelation it's got like. Over 600 quotations of the Old Testament. Right. You know, and you know, you can't really go, well, I get the book of Revelation. Okay. In order to get that, you got to go looking back at the Bible. Yeah. And that's why when we started our program, Unraveling Revelation, more than two years ago, I think we just did a program number 128, and we're still only up to Revelation 12. Um, we began with the book of Genesis, because unless you understand the rebellions that took place, not just in Genesis 3 with the, the serpent in the garden, but in Genesis 6 with these entities who are now in the abyss, that's who comes out in Revelation 9, and also the, uh, the rebellion at Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, which leads to the, uh, the, the small g gods that are still present on the earth today, the sons of God who were allotted to the nations for their inheritance, according to Deuteronomy 3. 419 and Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. When God divided the nations at the Tower of Babel, confusing the languages, he numbered the nations according to the number of the sons of God. And that phrase does not mean righteous humans. It means literal, you know, supernatural entities, angels, if you will. Uh, how many sons of God are there? Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 10 and read the table of nations, like, oh, there are 70. There's that number again. 70 which means God allocated or allotted to every other nation a sort of angelic supervisor, but reserved one for himself, which was Israel. <laughs> and wow. uh, it, Jews believe this to this day. Those who believe in end times prophecy, they believe that when their Messiah arrives, and actually they, they believe there will be two, Messiah ben Joseph, who will fight the war of Gog and Magog and be killed in that war. And then Messiah ben David, who uh, is either Messiah ben Joseph resurrected or he comes Messiah ben David shows up and resurrects Messiah ben Joseph finishes the war and then judges the nations and all of the nations and their angels will be sent into the uh, sent into Gehenna the lake of fire yes 
Interesting. Yeah. So again, it's, but that's what the old Testament tells us. God divided the nations. And uh, according to, um, according to, so I'm going to read this here. So I'm not uh, depending on my memory here. Uh, Deuteronomy four, beginning at verse 19, God is telling Moses to warn the Israelites, uh, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, the heavenly army, He's not speaking, you know, metaphorically here. He means these entities that were worshipped as gods or these spirit beings that said, yeah, hey, I'm totally the god of the sun. I am totally the moon god. You know, when you see that at night, that's me. Okay. All the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. And here's the, here's the money quote. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Mm. Then verse 20, but Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of the Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So what does that mean? It means that the rest of the Old Testament is a chronicle of this war between these rebellious small G gods and God, capital G God, God most high. And the people that he reserved for himself, which is why you got all of these other nations coming in and trying to destroy Israel, because they were smart enough to, you know, to uh, remember, hey, didn't back in Genesis, didn't he say something about the, you know, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent? We, we better we better look for that Messiah that he's been prophesying and, and try to destroy him before he uh, before he gets us. Which which would explain so many atrocities that we have seen all through history from Herod trying to kill kids as young as two years old, moving into more modern times we see, or no, not just that, but then we also see what happened with, um, uh, the, 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 that, uh, Greek King, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Thank you. Him. Wonderful dude. Annoying. Um, but also King, um, Oh gosh, who was the uh, the Roman emperor in the in the early second century who depopulated Judea after the uh, Bar Kokhba rebellion? Um, that one I don't know. Um, or, uh, yeah, it's not the Antonine Wall; it's the the other wall in in northern England. Um, and I'm sure there are listeners out there shouting it out. It begins with an H, and I can't remember it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> wow! Over and over again, the Jews have been uh, persecuted this way. But uh, God has also decreed that the uh, the small G gods who were leading the nations and the people to try to wipe out uh, the, the Israelites and the Jews, uh, they, their deaths have been decreed. Psalm 82 is like a courtroom scene in heaven. And this, again, I mentioned earlier is where we see the phrase in English, the divine council. Psalm 82, verse one, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So <laughs> who, who are these gods? You know, it, in Hebrew, the word is Elohim. And uh, like the English word deer or well, sheep, uh, it can be singular or plural, depending on context. Uh, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. Okay, That's... so we, we, not the same noun. It's a different context there. But he basically condemns them for judging and ruling unjustly. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He basically is decreed, look, you're, you're, I placed you over the nations to administer my will, and you're not doing what I told you to do. You're, you're, you're evil. You are, you are favoring the, the wicked, and so therefore, you're, you're condemned to die. Now, that sentence has been decreed, but judgment has yet to be carried out. I, I get the feeling that we could probably talk for days on end. I get the feeling that, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, because it took me a little bit to get my head around this concept. It really did. Well, it did for Sharon and me, too, when we first heard it. But as we started to piece things together, it's like, wait a minute. This this really makes things a lot easier to understand. There's and a it reason. changes the whole context of the Bible. It, it does. It does. And this was the understanding of the early church and the, uh, again, Jewish religious scholars uh, of the Second Temple period. They understood this, this worldview. It's just we've not been taught this because we have de-supernaturalized the Bible to the point where you know, it, it, G- Jesus is reduced to being sort of a, a cosmic life coach. I've seen that like 
And it's almost like, well, how do I, how do I use the Bible to make me feel good? Instead yes, of, exactly. You know, instead of, wait, how do I walk in holiness? How does that work again? And why do I need a savior? Salvation from what? Who's, who's trying to kill me that I need to be saved from? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty, um, like when you, when you start applying like all of this, it really does change the, like the entire, uh, context of the Bible. Because if you, if you look at it through a lens of war versus just a good book of how to not screw things up, Mm -hmm. to me, that, that really changes like how you approach things. The, The Bible becomes much more exciting. Yes. So let me ask you this to someone who might be listening and they're like, I'm not a Christian. And this sounds a little too creepy for me. Um, why should I give a care? <laughs> well, uh, reality doesn't care if you believe in it or not. It's going to smack you upside the head. Do you want to be prepared for it or not? It, I, I, I said again that I needed to be shown the evidence of what was in the Bible. I mean, it seemed like a, a good moral code. And, and really, this came about one night when I uh, realized I, I couldn't explain what was right and what was wrong to our daughter, who at the time was uh, six years old. And this mm-hmm. was you know, during the, the crisis in the relationship. And I, I was realizing that I had a lot more responsibility than I'd uh, uh, understood to that point. And th- again, this is not my own wisdom. This is the, I, I'm convinced now the Holy Spirit uh, or an angel tasked by the Holy Spirit with sort of hitting me on the side of the head with a with a sort of a cosmic board. Hey, wake up, dummy. <laughs> I needed to see the evidence. And, and again, this is where works like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, Josh McDowell's Evidence of Demands a Verdict were very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 15 is, is key, where Paul starts out First Corinthians chapter 15 by explaining the gospel by which we are saved, which is very simple. Verse 3. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. It is two verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Just accept this historic reality. Okay, well, how do we know that it's true? Well, then go on to verse 5. Then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words... Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and saying, okay, look, what I'm telling you is really, really important. And it's all about resurrection. And if you don't believe me that Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth was brought back from the dead, there are hundreds of witnesses still walking the earth 20 years later, which oh, is why wrote this letter. So send somebody from Corinth in Western Turkey to Jerusalem and ask around. The witnesses are still alive. Don't believe me. Check my work, send somebody and ask the witnesses. And then, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 7 was what was the sea change for me because I had read that James in John's gospel, John chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers, half-brothers, were trying to convince him to go to Jerusalem. Hey, you know, look, you want to be famous, you can't keep preaching up here in Galilee? I mean, this this is the sticks, man. You got to go to the big city where everybody is. And then verse five says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Mm. So James, one of his half-brothers, we know from Paul's writings, was one of the leaders of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. James didn't believe in Jesus while he was alive. What changed? First Corinthians 15, verse seven, the risen Christ, then he appeared to James. Oh, now, if my little sister, you know, two years younger than me, if she were to come to me one day and say, you know, before Abraham was, I am, in other words, a claim of divinity, mm-hmm. you know, we'd, we'd consider calling for some psychiatric evaluations, but, and that's probably what James and Jude and his other half-brothers were, were thinking while Jesus was going around telling, you know, doing what he was doing, but then he saw his brother who he knew had been crucified, who had been seen placed, you know, wrapped and placed in a tomb, and suddenly he's back. That, and for that, James was willing to die, because we know from the writings of Josephus, who was a Pharisee, 
who lived from uh, through the Jewish rebellion and uh, wrote a history of the Jews toward the end of the first century. He wrote that James was martyred around the year 62 AD. So 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, James was still so sure of what he had seen and so sure of what that meant that, oh, yes, my half-brother, Yeshua, really is the Messiah. He is in the Father. The Father is in him. He is the second member of the Trinity. He was willing to die rather than recant. Wow. Okay. For me, that was like, oh, so this is all real then. And since Jesus confirmed and that that Moses lived, that all of that stuff in the Old Testament is real too. As I said earlier, that was when I began to realize I needed to rethink the way I thought about a lot of things. You know, case for Christ, I was already a believer, but when I, when my, my husband and I sat down to read that particular book, it was an eye opener. Mm-hmm. It, it was really an eye opener. Um, like, you know, the Bible is real, you know, you know, all that stuff. But when you see it put down like that, it, it really does change things. Derek, I think um, what you have depicted is something that I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to have to chew on. If they want to dig a little deeper, where do you suggest they go? Well, I'll recommend again, if uh, people want to get the foundation for all of this, Dr. Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, his book, The Unseen Realm. But he's got an, and that's a rather scholarly work, which uh, is written by a guy with a PhD in, in, uh, in the Bible and Egyptian history and Israelite history and so on. Uh, but there's an introductory version that's a little easier to take or a little maybe a little easier to absorb as an introductory uh, uh, introduction to this whole concept. It's called Supernatural. Mm. I, I recommend either one of those. Um, our book, Giants, Gods, and Dragons, mm-hmm. tries to approach the same subject just to show that, hey, look, um, the apostles and the prophets understood that these entities in all of this weird, these weird parts of the Bible were real. And not only that, they're not there just to make the Bible more interesting because this, this rebellion, these, these several rebellions, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11, are all integral to Jewish and, of course, then Christian theology. So that would be another one that would, uh, uh, that would be, I think, important as a foundational work. A veneration focuses more on um, the cult of the dead and how some of the strange ways in which it manifests. I mean, we bring in the UFO phenomenon into uh, that in the book Veneration. But oh. uh, again, bottom line, you know, although the new book is The Second Coming of Saturn, which deals a lot with this entity who's coming out for five months at the end, I think foundationally, I point people every chance I get to Mike Heiser and his work on the Divine Council. Um, supernatural as the introductory work, the more scholarly work called The Unseen Realm. And from there, when you start applying, because all we're doing is applying the concepts that he laid out in those books to the Bible and saying, hey, you know, there's a reason that God chose to part the Red Sea. He didn't need to do that, but he did to make a specific point. And that's really what started us down this line of research as we were doing our, our weekly Gilbert House Fellowship Bible study in Exodus 14. We noticed for the very first time, God told Moses, turn back. Wait a minute, turn around, turn back. What? That, that's not in the movie with Charlton Heston. <laughs> yeah. Why did he tell him to turn around? It was, so we continue in Exodus, Exodus 14 and camp at this place facing Baal Zephon. Wait, Baal's a Canaanite God. Why is he in Egypt? Well, when you start peeling back, it's like, okay, historically, there was a period in the, say, from like 1680 to about 1560 BC, where Northern Egypt was ruled by Semitic speaking people called the Hyksos. And their chief god is, of course, Baal. Oh, okay. And ba- the mountain where Baal's palace was located is called Mount Safon. It's, we know where it is today. It's in Turkey. Uh, so why? Okay. So this place on the shore of the Red Sea, sacred to Baal. Why did God point them there? Oh, because Baal became the king of the Canaanite pantheon by defeating the god of the sea in combat. So the God of the Bible says to these Baal-worshipping Egyptians, hey, watch this. And God shows his mastery of the sea and then destroys Pharaoh's military in the the process. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of things like that all through the Bible. And once you understand that that's what's going on, uh, oh, man. Again, it changes. It it, it almost breathes new life into the old Bible stories that you, you are familiar with. Yes. 
Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it makes the Bible exciting again as we find things in Scripture that, uh, you know, just it's like, hey, wait, has that always been in there? <laughs> like, why didn't I see that before? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Because we in the West have a, a naturalistic worldview. And as Christians, we should have a supernatural worldview. And um, that's what we're trying to teach. Amen. Well, Derek, um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I think we definitely ought to have a few, uh, some more conversations because I have a feeling we just barely unpacked some of this. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm just highly fascinated by this subject. I think that it will uh, tie a few loose ends because um you know, we like to touch here at Unresolved. We like to touch on the stuff that makes the church uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, you know, and so we talk about things like UFOs and satanic ritual abuse and all the all the things that you might hear about in passing, but don't really know what what some of that is. And we touch on it and 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 do our best at bring a Christian response to it. Well, Amen. That's a good work, and uh, happy to happy to come back. I really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, <laughs> uh, I want to know what you think. Should I? Uh, I want to know um, what you guys thought of this conversation. You can email me, Teresa at unresolved.life. You know, uh, Derek did talk about the gospel. Um, and if you're listening and you realize that you need Christ, it's as simple as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe God is who he says he is, Christ incarnate, who came to live a life you couldn't live and died a death that you deserve. On the third day, he was he was raised and he's coming back in bodily form. And then confess it. Tell someone that you decided to become a Christian. You could tell me, you could tell someone else. You know, you just got to tell someone. A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. First of all, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show. Mm, my honor. Well, I'm Teresa Blaze. This has been the Unresolved Life Podcast. We will speak again next time. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.